This is Republic of INSEAD, the 20 years later O3D podcast edition. I am Milena Ivanova and will be your host in this limited series. So, here we are, 20 years later, hopefully all the wiser, naturally smarter and as charming as ever. There were 432 of us in the O3D vintage. And certainly, there are 432 unique and very interesting personal and professional stories to tell. While I cannot physically cover all, I have tried to make a selection of stories that will keep you interested and curious and will hopefully convince you to join us on campus for reunion. Welcome to the Republic of INSEAD podcast edition and enjoy the show. Alrighty, hello and hello again. Today, let me start directly with the Republic of INSEAD O3D entry for my guest, for I found it so shockingly to the point with its assessment and predictions 20 years on. Open quote. Sometimes one may think that he exists to defy us, the mainstream. His questions are most constructively provocative. His behavior and reactions often astonish and bewilder. Who would forget his cash performance? Few, if any, would dare repeat his act. He embodied the confrontational and the extreme. Yet, behind the scenes, he is an entrepreneur, a future telecom VC partner. Beware, do not be deceived by his appearances. Keep a watch on him for future funding needs or jobs. If nothing else, he can always give you a self-created guide to most cities and restaurants in Europe. And the guide is good, particularly for an area such as Conti. Trust him to point you to the best restaurant in the area for a business or a romantic meeting. Whatever the occasion, the advice is to the point, relevant and appropriate with a detailed driving map. As to his driving skills, rumors suggest that he is a daredevil on the road, as he was during Welcome Week. Some people have suggested that he's slowing down. It is difficult to believe in miracles, but who knows? He may prove us wrong and begin to drive like a mainstream guy. <laughs> End of quotation. So some things seem to simply not change, huh? He's still defying the mainstream, and I recently learned he actually started practicing launching things into space all these 20 years ago with a potato launcher. You may already be guessing who my guest is, but I'll let him tell the story. Welcome to the podcast. How is your driving these days? Hi, Malena. Thanks for <laughs> thanks for having me on. I'm laughing during some of those things because, uh, yeah, uh, I haven't changed that much across the years. And although my driving has been um, moderated by two children in the back seats nowadays, so <laughs> there you go. And do you remember your cash performance, or is that long forgotten? Because I don't. No. I, I modelled myself on uh, Nabil Nazir from the promotion before us, so I, I, I have to thank Nabil for a lot of uh, performance hints on <laughs> what I should take forward in Welcome Week. I remember his performance also. <laughs> I get the idea. All right, so shall we start with uh, my usual, give me the five-minute elevator pitch on your the last 20 years of your life, personal, professional, all in? Well... Post INSEAD, like uh, many people, I think I was looking to transition into a new career um, from my previous one, which was more engineering focused in uh, mobile telecoms. So I was looking for roles that could bridge across from that um, uh, that skill set into a new domain, more commercially focused. 
And um, while I was at INSEAD, I saw a job advert for a small startup in Dresden, uh, in, in the former eastern part of Germany. Um, one of the board members was an INSEAD alum, and um, I went to meet them. And it was kind of a classic uh, German tech startup with four very techie focused engineering guys and uh, they liked me and I liked them and I thought the product looked good so that's where I went after INSEAD and um, we quickly as a team grew that company to be quite dominant in its in its little niche and we sold the company um, successfully after a couple of years. I was then promoted in the acquiring company to the C-level uh, as the chief marketing officer and also running sales of the former product portfolio that we brought into the company in the acquisition. And uh, it just snowballed like that. My, the rest of my career for the following sort of decade or so was in similar companies, helping them grow, be acquired, be sold. Um, in total, six companies for a total of about $400 million in exit value. And um, yeah, I was relatively successful from um, a business and a financial point of view, I think, for everybody involved. And um, at the end of 2014, two of the, two of the companies sold in um, the same month in October 2014. And you know, I'd kind of done everything at that point that I wanted to in that sector. And I was kind of looking around for the new thing to do. And I did a little bit of consulting, but it was kind of consulting has never been my my kind of thing. You don't have enough responsibility, I think, in consulting for execution. And I kind of like the responsibility of execution. So I was, I was looking around for something new. And um, the founding story of Orbex is, um, which is the space rocket company I, I ended up founding with, um, again, four technical co-founders was was kind of random i mean i never intended to start a space rocket company well sorry but the Just... potato launcher tells it all you always meant to start that <laughs> well you know that's that's uh, you know something i'm sort of semi known for was was building those little um propane powered okay. potato launchers um in the fields of fieldsurf and uh you know, the rocket uh, that we ended up building is, is actually powered by biopropane, uh, the renewable form of propane. So there is a little bit of an echo back to to my formative years in the green fields of INSEAD. But I mean, the, the start was, was sort of random. I was on Reddit one night and uh, just, you know, surfing through Reddit. And I saw this um, weather balloon being sent up into the upper atmosphere with a GoPro attached to it. And, you know, I've, I've seen that project done hundreds of times. And I was just going, oh, another balloon with a GoPro attached. And I just thought, why can't somebody build a moon rocket in their back garden? That would be worth watching on Reddit, you know. And, uh, and then I just couldn't let go of the thought. It just stuck with me for days and days. I kept wondering, well, why can't you build a moon rocket in your back garden? I mean, what? how hard is it, right? I mean, things have changed since 1960. You know, it's not... It's, it's not rocket science engineer anymore. It's an engineering problem. You can buy books on how to build rockets and, and space engines and things, right? And computing has rolled forward. You know, your mobile phone has something like a million times more computing power than um, the Apollo that took people to the moon, you know? Carbon fiber exists and you can buy it online. 3D printing of metals is, is now available. So, you know, what, what can you do in your back garden? I was genuinely didn't know. And... I started to to literally Google, how do you build a moon rocket? <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous. But through that, I found people building small rockets in Europe um, and other parts of the world. And I just started emailing them, you know, asking, could you, could you do something like this? And the most rational response I got was from these guys in Denmark who built some suborbital rockets. Suborbital rockets go up and, 
uh, don't achieve enough velocity to get to orbit. So they just fall back down the surface of the Earth again after achieving a certain altitude. And and their their rational question was, yes, but have you got any money? <laughs> and I thought that was I thought that was a very that was a very on point question. And uh, so we met each other in Copenhagen a few times, and then we decided to start working together, which started in a frankly very casual way and and almost like a hobby uh, for me during 2015. Um, I was still doing some consulting projects and um, we really started to take it seriously in January 2016. That's when I dropped all my consulting and went on it full time and kind of pivoted towards a more professional approach. Got some of the friends I'd made money with in the past in other companies to to put money in with me as angels. Um, Got the first seed funding in, in 2016 and it just snowballed from there. We started to win you know, uh, grants were in the right place at the right time to win some quite important grants from the UK Space Agency and the European Space Agency and um, Series A, Series B, just closed a Series C of nearly $50 million last year. You know, we've won something like 40 million euros in grants across the the last eight years. And um, yeah, we'll be launching the rocket um, sometime around the middle of next year from our own spaceport in the north of Scotland. And, you know, I think Orbex today is um, you know, even with my biased rose-tinted sunglasses on, it is quite objectively viewed as the, the leading player in a new private space launch industry in Europe right now. So, you Amazing. know, something Congratulations, quite, huh? quite, quite surprising considering how it started, really. And um, yeah, and I, I recently stepped away from the business after eight years as CEO. And, you know, it was a very, you know, CEO role in that kind of company is is. 24 7 365 you know it's very hard to step away from anything for even a day frankly you go on holiday with your family and you end up on the laptop or on phone calls constantly and uh you know i i I felt like i got the company to a really good position now and um i've handed it over to others to take it through the next stages but i'm still you know closely connected you know strongly invested in success both you know practically and um emotionally and um looking forward to the company launching satellites into space very shortly and since you mentioned family maybe you give us the update yeah well i was in a relationship at insead and um we subsequently got married post insead how come you um, knew the romantic spots in Pontemblo then to write into your book well i was interested in bars anyway okay and um yeah, it's just it's not a very big place, Fontainebleau. <laughs> so, <laughs> really? If, if we if we'd been at uh, HSA in Paris, I don't think I'd have had time to get to all the bars that <laughs> uh, that let's say others on the promotion seem to know much better than I did. Right. <laughs> I won't mention any names, but there are a few in Vilsurf that were seem to be spending more time in Paris than they did in <laughs> in Fonty. And yeah, it's a small small town with you know half a dozen bars and you know, half a dozen restaurants, and it's not hard to get around there in a few days, right? But, uh, so, but I family interrupt- wise, so yeah. yeah, got married and and um, we we now have a couple of uh, daughters, um, ten and fourteen. Um, we've always been based in Munich um, for various professional and family reasons. I'm still based in Munich. Haven't moved, although I've I've travelled a lot for business, um, working in Denmark, Scotland, Switzerland, um, US. Well, not working in the US, but flying often to the US for business. Yeah, and, and Germany as well from time to time. So, All right. So shall we talk space and launching rockets and Mars? And we had an interesting conversation last week, and I found it very educational. Like, 
one of the things with that podcast is I think that people's curiosity to always learn something new, at least our bunch, is is never going to disappear. And so the, the, the conversation about space, we hear a lot about it, but it's very far removed from most of our no, uh, understanding and knowledge. So can you, like... Give us the 101 on space and getting to Mars and Musk and, you know. <laughs> well, you know, space is involved in almost everything we do day to day on Earth. Uh, most of the applications of space technology are geared towards driving um, a better world on, on the surface of planet Earth. If you look at things we do every day from navigation using GPS to weather forecasting, um, scientific information about migration patterns or ocean blooms, pollution, um, CO2, ozone, um, even some applications now like looking at the heat blooms around various office buildings to predict which office buildings are going to be the most um, energy efficient, um, looking at ice movements in you know, the polar cap. Um, you know, there's myriad applications for satellite technology now, and it's just exploding at the moment. There are there are hundreds more uses coming on the stream as people start to use quantum technologies, for example, in, in space for quantum communications. To some degree, there's a, uh, a militarization of space going on by a couple of key nations. Um, not extreme militarization, but there are some things happening up there that you read about from time to time. And um, and then beyond that, you look at things like exploration and scientific missions where people are putting payloads into orbit around the moon, um, onto the surface of Mars, even a helicopter, a small helicopter on the surface of Mars, um, rovers on Mars. And before too long, um, you know, I expect you'll see SpaceX taking people to Mars in that big new heavy launch they've got called Starship, which can take about 100 tons to orbit, which is a huge huge payload mass and they recently flew that rocket quite successfully even though it, it was destroyed that was actually a really successful test if you if you're part of the industry and you know how difficult it is to get that thing off the ground that was a massively successful test and you know spacex is it's wh whether you like or dislike elon his achievements um, and the achievements of the, the team and the engineers and the management at spacex are extraordinary Amazing. It's like watching a sci-fi movie sometimes when you see what they do. And they're really, I think, driving the the leading edge of um, particularly launch technology forward at an incredibly fast pace. And what, what that drives then is a, a lower economic cost to get things into space. And that's always been the real barrier to getting lots of things into space. It's very, very expensive to lift a kilo um, through the gravity well of Earth uh, in, into orbit. Once you're in orbit, it's relatively easy to get to other places, but getting into orbit is the expensive, difficult part of um, space access. And if if you have a launcher, if you have a launch vehicle capable of taking things into Earth orbit, I, I think it's like owning the ships in the old days when people were transiting the oceans and, and trading goods from Europe to America. I, I genuinely think owning space access um, is very equivalent to that. So. Orbex's his goal is to take small payloads to orbit up to about 200 kilograms. Um, others like SpaceX are focused on much, much heavier payloads, you know, 20 tons, 100 tons, which is a huge amount of payload um, and, and geared more towards their market segments. Our market segment is focused around much smaller stuff. And um, but who knows where that leads in the longer term? Mm. Um, I do expect people to land on Mars while I'm still alive. Um, assuming I survive another decade or so. 
Oh, well. <laughs> so getting to Mars, we talked uh, getting to Mars. And I was like, well, because I've never been attracted to this. I, yeah, sci-fi is not my, you know, book genre, etc., etc. But I said, okay, so why would anyone want to go to Mars? And your, and your answer was? My answer was, do you do business with America? <laughs> right? I, why did people cross the ocean to America back in the day? you know, 300 odd years ago, they didn't know what was there, but now it's an economic powerhouse and, you know, it's one of the, the dominant forces on the planet. And I, I see the gap, the, the physical gap between Earth and Mars as being the equivalent of the Atlantic Ocean going back a few centuries. You don't know what's on Mars, what will be built there, but once humans start building things on Mars and you roll forward three centuries, it could be a very important place. And, um, the gap between the two planets might be much smaller and more frequently plied um, than it is today. And, uh, you know, I think we're at the dawn of a, a really new chapter in human history where we're not just talking about oceans and airplanes. We're talking about interplanetary things in, in a genuinely realistic way. And I think Starship, the, the new um, SpaceX launcher, is the thing that starts to really enable that beyond the kind of exploratory missions that have gone on so far with things like the Curiosity Lander and the small helicopter. Um, you know, those are very scientific payloads looking to bring back scientific data. But once you can start landing 100 tons of, of people and equipment um, on Mars, then you're moving into a different dimension. So how long would it take to get to Mars for a, yeah? It, it depends on the, um, the physical locations of Earth and Mars as they move around their orbits, okay. but it's a few months. Um, depending on, on which year. There are there are times that come along that are the best times to launch and there are worse times to launch. If you if you watch the uh, the Martian, the movie, they explain some of it there where you know they're trying to do a resupply mission and it takes really long and if they don't go now they're gonna miss the window. And it is it is kind of like that. If you want the shortest possible flight time, there's a certain year, month, day to go. And but if you're willing to accept a longer flight time, you can go almost any time you want. There are consequences for that on the crew and sustaining the crew on board for you know an additional three or four months um but it's possible if you've got that margin spaces uh, i've learned um is all about margins safety margins uh, margins for performance margins for mistakes and um recovery of mistakes you know you, you want margin almost everything you do so that you can um ensure that you can accomplish what you want to do despite things getting in your way that are unexpected so what was your what would be your interpretation of the two launches of bezos versus branson well hmm. so you have to look at those as different things first of all they're suborbital right mm -hmm. both both the uh, virgin galactic richard branson funded um launcher which flies under the wing of a uh, a mothership and then is is launched on a kind of a suborbital arc and the um the the blue origin rocket which goes up about 100 kilometers or so just above what's called the carmen line and takes people into the lower limits of, of um what's normally defined as space they're both designed to go up and come straight back down again just like i just like i said earlier about suborbital rockets they go up and they they don't achieve enough velocity to get to orbit so getting to orbit is a much much harder problem than suborbital flight there are many student groups um, that can achieve suborbital flight and go up, you know, 30, 40, 50 kilometers 
maybe even as high as 80 or 90. I saw one recently going up from, from Sweden that was, was about that altitude. But then they, they don't achieve enough velocity to stay in orbit. Mm. So they fall straight back down to Earth in, in a parabola. The difficult part is is achieving that velocity. And it's, it's a lot, you know, it's, it's tens of thousands of kilometers per hour to get to orbit. And um, navigating the, the rocket to quite extreme precision at that speed as well. You know, I saw a requirement from the European Space Agency to within European Space Agency to within 10 centimeters on orbit. That's yeah. how accurate they have to, to guide those rockets um, to take payloads into space. And some rockets and some organizations are, are really, really good at it. You know, the um, Ariane 5 rocket is incredibly reliable and accurate. SpaceX Falcon 9 is launching every few days um, and most of them are, are being reused now. They're, they're coming back to Earth onto the original landing pad back on the coast or they're, they're coming down on a drone ship out in the Atlantic Ocean. They're being reused several, several times. I mean, you know, some of those rockets have launched, you know, 10 or 15 times now. And that brings down the cost as well because you, you can recover very expensive engines and refurbish them and reuse them. You quite often hear in this business, imagine if... if um, Every time you flew to New York from London, you had to throw away the airplane, and you know that's that's kind of what what space life is is like or was like until SpaceX innovated on the reusability about uh, well not that long ago, less than a decade ago. Yeah, and I think reusability, you know, that's something we focus on at Orbex as well, reusability and environmental sustainability, and both those things I think are going to be really important to space flight in the next you know decade plus. Okay, so. You mentioned towards their cost and reusability plus the environment. How much did you actually raise in total? And how much does it cost to build one of your a rocket like yours and put the launcher, et cetera, et cetera? So Orbex between public and private venture capital financing has raised uh, just over $100 million. Mm. That gets us to our first few launches. Um, I'm not going to give you the cost of each rocket. Yeah. I think that's confidential to the company. <laughs> but um, we've been successful selling now. Uh, the company has sold seven launches with six customers. So, you know, I think the, the company has basically sold out for the first couple of years of launching. And, um, you know, that gives us a good confidence then to, to build on. I say, I keep saying us because I yeah. just left the job like a month that ago. Course. So I'm still in that mode. For, I should say they, not not us, I guess. Um, I'll have to figure you out what, what terminology is in the future. You did say you're still a shareholder, right? I am. I am still the largest shareholder in the company. Yeah. There so, um, yeah, I guess it yeah. is still us then. And with regards to the environment, you were explaining in our little chat group that the fuel you use is actually quite clean. But can you and and how does this compare relative to what SpaceX is doing using for? Yeah. So the majority, um, the vast majority of launchers out there today use fossil fuels. So highly refined kerosene, very much like aviation gas, avgas. It's usually called RP1, Rocket Propellant 1, which is a slightly more refined version of Avgas. Um, but it's a fossil fuel coming out of the ground. So it's not sustainable. It has quite a large CO2 footprint and it has some other um, black soot problems that it deposits um, carbon particles very high in the atmosphere. And this is actually a major problem. There's some research that's been done that says that the annual volume of rocket launches is, is the global equivalent of the entire airline traffic globally mm. which not a lot of people are aware of but it's a massive problem because of that black soot that gets deposited by non-clean combustion of fossil fuels 
So when when Orbex started, you could you knew this was coming, right? You could see climate change is coming. Everybody's talking about it. You know, you have you're going to be have to be on that page a decade from when you start at least. So we started with that in mind. How do we reuse the vehicle? How do we cut the carbon footprint? And part of that was an engineering solution using propane. Is we, the company has a couple of patents on the use of propane that allows us to cut the the mass of the rocket, which is very helpful from a technical point of view, but also one of one of my INSEAD um, colleagues, Fulke van Leider, pointed out to me <laughs> that you can get a bio version of propane. He was running um, a propane company called SHV Energy at the time, um, which owns Calor and Liquid Gas and Prima Gas brands in various countries of Europe. So, you know, I, I shared a house <laughs> with Fulke oh. at Vilsurf. And so just by accident, we picked propane. And then I remembered, oh, Fulke runs you know, the largest propane companies in the world. So I emailed him and he said why don't you use the bio version and i was like that is great so we ended up using the bio version which cuts the the carbon footprint compared to fossil fuel by um 95 96 i think we did a study with imperial college so we, we really get the carbon foot down now carbon foot down really massively to the point that we even got the danish green future fund to invest in the company so, i love this whole know, story so, so insead and vilserf are like the things that keep on giving back for yeah, you, also, like... also Chris Coleridge, um, Chris Coleridge at Philsef, yes. he was one of the angel investors in the company. Oh, there you go. You remember Chris. And Shout the chairman out. of the company is Bart Marcus, who's from uh, a previous promotion, who I also met when I was at INSEAD in, in one of the uh, the lectures he gave there. We had a, had a chat at the coffee bar and I stayed in touch and he ended up being chairman of the company. Amazing, huh? So. Mm -hmm. Okay. And for all these years, you still haven't made it back on campus for reunion, Chris. So. <laughs> I, I came to the first one. But you I didn't did? come to subsequent ones, no, for there various reasons. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. So can you tell me, like, what would you say is the most important tenet to being an entrepreneur for you? What has helped you and what do you think you cannot have managed without? Well, I, I, um, one of our investors, Jimmy Fussing Nielsen from a VC called Hardcore in Denmark, we were discussing what, what of my personal characteristics helped to succeed and he told me you're really stubborn you you don't give up you know you don't quit you just keep pushing keep pushing until eventually something breaks in your favor and and you get there and he said and that's really important and so i do think that stubbornness that kind of mission focus and not giving up is is massively important but coupled with that is the stamina to to be stubborn right the the, the willingness to work you know through the night through the weekends just to work as hard as possible to get things done is is very important and and that that's not just in one person you need a team of people that are aligned with that in the early in the founding team i think it's very important that everyone's aligned on that focus otherwise it's very hard to achieve things you know by yourself i think you you always have to work with other people whether they're stakeholders or team members or investors and unless you've got alignment on that work ethic it's very hard to have, have big achievements, I think. So yeah, I would say stubbornness and stamina are, are really massively important in any entrepreneurial task. And you mentioned breaking and we were talking last week about your blood pressure. So how, how about stress and health? Well, I mean, you know, CEO role is incredibly stressful. And, um, you know, I, I always say that uh, shit rolls down hills and the CEOs live in the valley right 
<laughs> and um, it's true, you know, everybody everybody turns to you for, for a problem and a solution uh, of any magnitude. Funding, you know, team, um, safety, engineering, you're, you're the linchpin in those things. The role is the linchpin, not, you know, and it ends up being a substantial um, amount of stress day to day. And I, I've been doing that role now for eight years from, you know, the first slightly harebrained PowerPoint <laughs> tech to, you know, quite serious business plans, quite large investment rounds, investment banks, you know, engagement with the, the most senior people in Europe. I've met prime ministers and um, director generals of ESA and things like that on a regular basis. I exchange for them um, on topics of strategy and future direction of the industry. So, I mean, you know, you, you get a, a very broad view of things, but you, you, you are the responsible person for pretty much everything in the company. You sign almost everything of any importance and you have to read it and make sure you understand it and challenge bits of it. So there comes a point where you, you kind of wonder if you've got enough energy to do it again, to go through the next cycle of things. And I think I reached that point last year and um, decided to kind of get the company to the point where I could responsibly move on. And that's, that's, uh, that's what we reached at the beginning of this year. And um, yeah, and I departed the company in May, still, still involved, still engaged with various aspects of things, but I'm not responsible for the day-to-day -day operations anymore. How many people did you have at, by the time you... When I left, the company was about 140, yeah. um, growing to about, we're probably going to grow a bit more than that, I think. I won't, I won't say exactly how much, but it, um, it's got a little bit more growth left, but it's in, in really good shape, I think, now to, to move forward to launch. And just as I left, the spaceport was starting construction. This is all public. I'm not giving away secrets yeah. now, and I, and I won't, but, you know, we broke ground on the spaceports. Um, there was some more public funding came into the company. The VC round was closed last uh, November. Um, you know, things are in really good shape. And um, the 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 remaining management and the new management have to not violate what we call rule three. So, tell me um, about these rules. You told me, but tell the rest. So when you start... Well, I won't company... tell you the first two rules. That I'll keep those <laughs> secret. But the okay. rule three was don't fuck it up. Okay. <laughs> And rule three, as you know, you'll hear people talk about rule three uh, from time to time. It's it's kind of, it's a code word for, you know, do your job, uh, be yeah. responsible. Um, you know, I, I can't be looking over everybody's shoulder. I don't understand the internal thermodynamic equations driving rocket engine combustion. I have to trust other people do. I have to, you know, depend on them to do their job. Other people don't understand the mechanics of a VC fundraise and the various um, due diligence processes that go with that. And they have to rely on me to do my job and, and see that through. And, you know, as a team, we all have to kind of keep things going and and not be the point of failure that causes it all to fall over. And that was a kind of an ethos is, is um, you know, be responsible, hire people that can um, overperform. We're very selective on hiring. Although it's a small company, you know, it's a very attractive company to to work for and um you know we've probably got a hundred job applicants for every job we opened oh, at wow. least um you know and the biggest problem was filtering then right going through the cvs and finding would you rely uh, people on you AI? really wanted would you rely on ai to filter to some degree yeah i think okay. you can you can quickly filter some things you know because let's say for example you're hiring uh, a senior position like a head of propulsion or a head of structures or something like that where you really need industry expertise and someone's applying and they've just left university well i mean you, no. you don't need an ai 
<laughs> to think of, that's not going to be a good fit, right? So, you know, I think some of those things you can do quasi-autonomously or with or junior staff looking at it. But then when it gets to interviewing, you need experts testing experts, right? Especially in the, a, a technical domain like this where the smallest mistake can result in mission failure. I mean, you, you know, Virgin Orbit, um, which is the other uh, brand that, that uh, Richard Branson started focused on satellite launch and which recently went bankrupt. They had a failure in Cornwall based on a fuel filter that costs, you know, 20 bucks. And it, and it took down the entire rocket and the satellites on board for the customers, you know, after years of work and uh, millions spent on that mission, I imagine. But, you know, it, it really comes down to silly, silly little things sometimes that drive the whole mission into the ocean rather than into space. And that's uh, not a good day for anybody. So I like this rule number three, you know, uh, in our section, we had T-shirts made, uh, E6. So I think we should do for reunion uh, uh, rule number three T-shirt. And if you don't show up to reunion, you should send us these T-shirts <laughs> to replace your presence. So there you go. I have a challenge for you there. So do you think you'll become a VC partner at some point? Because that, that still hasn't transpired and that's in, in your yearbook entry. So where are you headed from here? I don't know. I'm looking around for the next thing now. I've had a few uh, things offered to me since in the last sort of few weeks since I announced I was moving on. There's some interesting opportunities in AI, um, some quite high-profile jobs in space. You know, I'm, I'm fairly well-connected in the space sector and... Um, I'm not sure if EC is the right thing for me. I, 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 I'm more of an operationally focused person, I think, than a kind of portfolio finance manager, which I think VC largely is. Yep. So I'm not, I'm not sure that's the direction I would end up taking. But, you know, you ne never say never, right? Right. So uh, to switch gears, and we are coming closer to the end, but uh, giving back to INSEAD, you mentioned, well, INSEAD has been instrumental in so many ways. And I've been chasing you, but you've been ignoring me. But let's talk giving back in general and then INSEAD in particular. <sighs> Tell me, how do you think about giving in general and then giving to INSEAD? What would make you give to INSEAD, to a place like INSEAD? Well, I mean, giving giving is, is a broad topic. It's not just money, right? Uh, I, I think absolutely. giving time, time can be very valuable too. And I do spend... Um, or I did spend a reasonable amount of time um, coaching younger people um, early in their careers. For example, I had a, uh, a young woman who was just um, leaving school. Who was I got her to follow me around for two or three days as I went to various meetings with European Space Agency and um, European Commission and in the factory and things like that, which is it even took her into a board meeting. So to encourage um, female uh, future managers to see what, what's out there, right? They don't, they probably won't see those kind of things until 10 or 15 years into their careers, if they're lucky. So showing them now what they could do if they were entrepreneurial and, and did things is actually quite helpful for them to set an ambition, to set a goal for themselves, I think. So I, I was quite focused on that, particularly for young women. I have daughters and, you know, and this, this sector I'm in is heavily male dominated, right? I mean, it really is 95% male, I would think, um, especially in the engineering domains. Mm. So encouraging... Um, what the UK calls science, technology, and mathematics, um, female participation, or let's say non-male participation. We also had some um, uh, transgender members of staff as well, so it should be inclusive of those those people. I think it's important to to kind of give them the opportunity to see what's going on and give time to those 
the next generation of people coming through so that they don't miss the opportunities that might be available to them, not just by lack of access. So that's the first part of giving. And in terms of money, well, uh, I think your uh, your class fund is like 400K. And mm -hmm. I think I'm, uh, I think if I, <laughs> I think I'm a very, very, very small percentage of that. <laughs> but I have to say, I've disconnected from a lot of INSEAD over the past you know, decade, 15 years. I haven't been involved in any of the alumni groups or reunions or anything so i probably wasn't even getting the emails coming out to me not that, that not that i would probably you know change too much to be honest with you but um i i only recently started getting the emails again so there you go so we have some grounds to cover there all right so shall we go to the um, last bit which is a bit of back and forth on quick questions and answers proudest achievement well i i don't dwell too much on pride honestly. So it's very hard to answer. I guess it's a very uh, family focused one. I'm really proud when my daughters get the uh, top marks in German because <laughs> our family German? is an Eng English. No, well, we do, but we're, it's our third language in the family. We speak uh, English and Italian at home. And yeah. uh, so them getting good marks in German is a is a, a day for celebration, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. So it's, it's probably quite a trivial one, but it, we're all very happy when that happens. And it happens with surprising regularity. So, you know, good for them. Smart girls. Success for you is? I, again, I don't know. I don't, again, when, I guess Orbex has been successful, for example, but we don't spend a lot of time dwelling on the success. It happens in a, you know, a microsecond or two and we're all happy. And then we move on to the next set of things that needs knocking down, the next set of challenges or issues or problems that we need to address. It's a very short-lived thing. And I kind of see success as stepping stones in a way. You know, you need to achieve this to achieve that, to achieve the, the ultimate goal. And um, even even in reaching the ultimate goal, I don't think is particularly satisfactory. I don't I don't count successes like, you know, like Manchester United Catstead Championships. <laughs> so look at when you, and I saw this question, I was like, I'm not really sure what I would count as, um, as success, but... Um, stepping stone there have been some but i couldn't i couldn't list them for you mm, all right happiness is health excellent i've only realized that honestly in the last couple of years as i start to get a bit older but i do think health is massively important to just being able to enjoy life and um i think that's going to be a focus in my personal life in the next uh, decade or so is staying on top of health i recently was um was recommended a book to read called Lifespan. Oh, I love it. It's by an Sinclair. amazing book. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm halfway through it and I'm starting to understand that there might, you know, there might be uh, some some hope for us middle-aged uh, executive blondes out there. And, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, interesting. I've been talking to Andrew Booth. He's uh, in biotech. And then um, yesterday I talked with Christophe Bancel, who is in medtech. So they've been educating me but uh, you know with lifespan you realize that we may have a longer time to hang around so we better take care uh, technology would help us our generation and our children's generation for sure if we don't kill the planet in the meantime but uh, we do have to take care as well all right biggest regret I don't have any cool what keeps you awake at night well over the past sort of eight, 10 years, it changed on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's always, there's always some um, high, high order 
problem to be solved in a short period of time with a rocket company, whether it's funding or tech or staffing or organization or grant processes. There's always some some really high priority milestone or target or objective you've got to you've got to knock down. And some of them are quite difficult to define and quite difficult to achieve. Um, so you spend a lot of time, you know, when you're awake, you spend a lot of time worrying about it. And when you're asleep, it wakes you up worrying about it. So mm. yeah, a whole bunch of things related to the business, I would say. So are you sleeping better now? Yeah. All right. I am. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. Another book I'll recommend is uh, Why We Sleep, by the way. Let's check that out. Yeah. Wish you had known or someone had told you. I think I kind of knew this intuitively, but it but someone should tell you explicitly you can do anything. Mm. You don't you don't need I mean I entered the the space launch sector not knowing the first thing about rocket launches, right? But I found people who knew what they were doing. And I had skills that they didn't have, and together we made a team that could make that possible. Mm. And I do think people coming out of INSEAD have an amazing breadth and depth of skills and experiences it, it's, it's staggering honestly when you look back at what people knew even back then um i always use this this example of ray in uh, harold howe's bond stripping class where ray knew more than than <laughs> harold did about you know bond stripping in the japanese uh, high yield market or whatever it was it's hilarious to see it in retrospect but um you know, I wish someone had said to you, you know, you're not you're not constrained to just work for consulting organizations or investment banks. And some people realized that and went on to very interesting things. And there are other there are other people who've done really amazing things. Um, you know, I'm not the only one. And I, I but I think that should be stated somewhere. It should be kind of a um a mission to to let people be aware that there are myriad possibilities for your career beyond the basic kind of go straight into one of those uh, standard organizations. If you had to do it all over again, would you change anything? Not really. No, mm -hmm. I think I right. wouldn't change much. No. Do you think you're ever retiring? No, not a chance. If you had to pick one book, everyone should read. Well, I it's an old book, but I, it's one that was kind of formative in my mindset. Zen and the Art of Motor Motorcycle Maintenance okay. is, a, is a great book. And it's one that I've read several times over the years, and it's a kind of a philosophical journey, literally and figuratively. But I think it's a lovely book. It gives you this sort of nice framework to think about quality in life mm. and um, the, the Western and Eastern philosophies towards what is quality. I think that's an excellent book that's probably overlooked nowadays, but it's, it's genuinely been something that I reflected on many times over the, the decades. I'll check it out. I haven't read it. Most admired person, public person. Well, this is a weird one. I actually got to meet her a couple of years ago. We were both speaking at a, a conference and it's Dame Ellen MacArthur, who was um, a yachtswoman who did a solo round the world um, yachting trip in her, I think it was in her early 20s, um, raising the money by writing hundreds of letters and finding a sponsor and then taking off on her own and doing it. And now she's built a foundation um, after retiring from sailing that focuses on the circular economy. So looking at making sure that we can reuse things as often um, as possible before they get disposed. And she's a genuinely inspirational character, I think. Um, Ellen MacArthur, if you don't know her story, I would recommend looking her up. All right. Well, but that's going back to giving back. So 
it is in you. Mm -hmm. And most despised public person, if you have one? I, I wouldn't focus on one person, but one thing I really can't stand is social media. All right. I think it's, I think it's a, a, a toxin uh to society today uh another friend of mine recently recommended i read a book by johan hari called stolen focus mm -hmm. and uh, again i'm halfway through that book and but it, it it kind of highlights the issue of social media stealing um productive um hours and and depth from our lives and replacing it with superficiality and um this kind of uh what can i call it this kind of um popularity focus which mm. is which is detrimental i think to the development of society i mean it's not going to go away but i suspect it'll be regulated before too long and um it's i'm looking forward time, to seeing huh? what the next generation of social media brings um mm. it's I, I think it's quite toxic to society today and it's, it's been used in all kinds of uh, malevolent ways as well by various parties in, in various ways and uh, that's not that's not positive for society it's been a few years now I've been saying that if you ask me, Putin should build a monument for Zuckerberg in the middle of Red Square. And that's not being a compliment. It is such a horrible... You see it so well in Eastern Europe. It's not even funny. I see it in Bulgaria on a daily basis. It's, it's destroying society in the ugliest possible way. And it's being used by, by the worst of players. And that, that's horrible. But it, So I'm fully with you there. To lighten things up, last, last question. Are you coming to reunion? help you maybe break maybe i the, the date kind of clashes with a couple of birthdays but i'm talking to my wife about it and uh because it's the 20th i might turn up actually Yael, i was on the uh, uh i just joined the whatsapp group uh, yeah. a few days ago and Yael was suggesting i do a short presentation so See? if that uh if I, if I was forced to, I might show you some pretty pictures of what goes on behind the scenes at a rocket company. Okay, so we'll keep on working on forcing you, Chris. There you go. So I'm not, I'm not going to bring my, my bank card with me, though, Marlena. It's so. all right, Chris. I told you, as I told you on the... Well, let me say this. First, as I told you, I, I invited you in particular, not for your bank card, but because I don't think there's another INSEAD alum in all of the INSEAD alumni, not just our class that's done... A rocket so far so you know with you i've there but you did say that if your business ipos we may talk again so i will be watching closely for this ipo someday well let's see <laughs> who knows right there's lots of there's a lot of uh, work that needs to go on and you know i i'm i'm certainly just a comment on orbex you know i didn't build that company alone right it's a team of co-founders and a lot of really skillful and um, dedicated people who've helped build that company to where it is now and you know next year we'll see how successful it's, it's been when we launch the first rockets into space and um, i'm sure there'll be a couple of failures along the way there usually are in yeah in new rocket launches but uh, before too long i think that company will be flying regularly to space mm. and will be the first private space launch company in europe which is mm. um Fingers an interesting crossed position and, to be in and do tell us when uh, when the uh, launch is scheduled so that's all from me today and this was a conversation with chris larmore because i didn't announce initially serial entrepreneur founder and until very recently ceo of orbex currently a guy of leisure but i suspect not for very long and he he confirms that thank you very much for your time and your generosity uh, chris and i somehow still hope we convince you so i keep working on this presentation for reunion <laughs>
Have a good day and have a Thanks, good Valeria. trip to Turkey. You are listening to the Republic of INSEAD 20 Years Later O3D Podcast Edition. It is my hope to remind everyone what an interesting and dare I say colorful bunch of people we are and how much we can contribute to each other, be it through ideas, knowledge or mere inspiration. The podcast is inspired by the original Republic of INSEAD yearbook produced on paper 20 years ago by Oliver Bradley and team. Thank you, Oli and team, for this contribution to our class's memory and for letting me continue in the tradition, title and inspiration included. Creator and author of the Republic of INSEAD 20 Years Later O3D Podcast Edition am I, Milena Ivanova. Original music by Peter Dundakov with help from Their Films Productions. Stay tuned for more and remember to book your tickets for the 20-year reunion in Fontainebleau, October 6th, 8th, 2023. Thank you for listening.